Well, I grew up in a kosher-keeping Jewish family, and there are degrees of kosher. So if I hear someone say to me, oh, I keep kosher, or I grew up kosher, my immediate thought is really, how kosher? So this is a basic chart of what is kosher and what isn't. So you have kosher meat, and you have unkosher or treif, um, chicken turkey that's kosher. If you were Jewish, you could not eat that eagle that you were hoping to have uh, for dinner. Lots of fish is kosher. Um, uh, shellfish is not kosher. Number four is a biggie, um, uh, meat. Um, not eaten in the, sa eat, eaten in the same uh, meal as dairy. So visiting Tom's family for the first time was a challenge. And at that time in my life, I was a young woman, I was no longer observing a strict kosher way of eating, but I hadn't eaten a lot of meat with dairy. Like, I would have never had a cheeseburger, which might be normal for some of you. Um, but eating at Tom's house, so I sit at the table, and first there's this big cut of meat, which would have been unkosher, because why would they have had kosher? But then it's wrapped in bacon, like lots and lots of bacon, which is very, <laughs> which is very unkosher. And then it's covered in cheese sauce. And every vegetable is covered in cheese sauce, like 150 ways of not kosher. And I'm like, could you please pass the salad? A very kosher home involves not only um, the food requirements, but two sets of dishes. So one for milchik, which is dairy, and one for fleshik, which is meat. Two sets of silverware, two sets of utensils. Sometimes, some families will have two sinks and two ovens, so that the dishes that had dairy don't uh, have meat in them as well. So we were not that kosher. We were, I would say, pretty kosher. So we ate lots of kosher brisket and veggies, veggies sans sauce, like often steamed vegetables, and we dutifully waited, if not the six hours required by law, we waited two hours before we dipped our chocolate chip cookies in a glass of milk after dinner. My sibs and I had kosher bologna on matzah, so unleavened bread for the Passover holiday um, every day um, for eight days at school in our lunchbox. Um, and so did most of the other kids who I went to school with because I grew up in a Jewish village. So we were pretty kosher. Then one day, as a young adult, I learned something. All this kosher brisket that I ate as a kid, it wasn't brisket, and it wasn't kosher. <laughs> Unkosher meat, as it happens, were less expensive, which mattered for my family, and often more tasty, which apparently also mattered. I was told everything was brisket so that when I was with my orthodox or more religious relatives, I wouldn't bring shame on my family. So in other words, there were two illusions. One, the meat 
I was eating was kosher, illusion, and two, my parents were telling me the truth. They were not. <laughs> now, not the end of the world, um, but a bit disillusioning. So an illusion is a false belief or belief system, sometimes not always, but sometimes told by power to hide the truth of who benefits from the system. So in this case, my parents benefited. Disillusionment comes often by surprise when you encounter someone outside your system. So the first time I flew on an airplane, I was 15 years old and I was alone, and I ate ham thinking it was kosher bologna because of course all airplanes serve kosher food for the 3% Jews in our country. But when I realized it was ham, I was both disillusioned and convinced we were going down. <laughs> Scripture is filled with moments that I imagine were quite disillusioning. Abraham, who is chosen by God and presumably a man of God, but when he is in a dire situation, he gives his wife, Sarah, over to an enemy king to be that king's wife, claiming that Sarah was his sister in order to save his own life. That would be disillusioning. King David is known as a man after God's own heart. He worships God with reckless abandon that still serves as a model for us today. But King David also rapes Bathsheba, has her husband killed in battle so that he can possess Bathsheba and brings womanizing to a whole new level. Now, I can't speak for Bathsheba, but I can guess that she too might have been disillusioned. There are many moments of disillusionment in the scripture when Joseph, so Joseph who found great favor with uh, Pharaoh um, in Egypt, but then generations later when Joseph's great-grandchildren found themselves slaves in the same country. When 40 days of wandering turns into 40 years when the temple is destroyed. This morning, I'm asking the question if the Bible has anything helpful to say to us, to you, and to me in our disillusionment. And there is a short story in the book of Numbers, which we don't always preach from here at Sanctuary, but it's a lovely story that I find really compelling and it's known as the Daughters of Zelphahad. So, Numbers 27. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, belonged to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eliezer the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting and said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who banded together against the Lord, 
but he died for his own sin and left no sons. He's basically saying he died of natural causes. He didn't do something um, bad to rebel against God. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son. So I imagine from my 20th century sensibilities, these women thinking, we women should have the same rights as men. We too are made in the image of God. We've heard those stories told. We are the daughters of Sarah, of Rebecca, and of Rachel. We know our father would have wanted us to have this inheritance. The Mosaic law does not favor women. So the sisters appeal shrewdly to what they know that men care about, caring for the name of a man. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and the Lord said to him, what Salophahed's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as an inheritance among their father's relatives and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites, if a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in the clan that he may possess it. This is, uh, this is to have the force of the law for the Israelites as the Lord commanded Moses. So in this story, the voices of the young women are heard. In a way, I learned to do Bible study um, as a young woman. We would have noticed all the references to the son of, son of, son of, and all that is male in the passage. It reads as if the author is hinting to us in the heart of the most patriarchal of societies, the sisters happened. Now, honestly, I wonder how this story ended up in scripture. I wonder who this amended law benefited beyond these young women because mostly we hear about women being property in scripture and not owning it. But I absolutely love this story and I love that somebody chose to put this in our canon. There are five devoted daughters I imagine them living in accordance with these new laws that Moses had been given by God, right? That had just happened. And I imagine them worshiping the God who delivered them from bondage in Egypt, the God who in the desert gave them manna, food from heaven to eat every day. And I imagine them singing with Miriam, like we do every week because we have Miriam on the back wall, shaking her timbrels. And then their dad dies. And they're like, wait, what do you mean we don't get the property? Like, how can that even be? The illusion in this story is that a system centrally structured by patriarchy works for everybody. And the disillusionment comes for these women, women when the men or the men die. The system that they believe was so good 
so God suddenly was not. And I can imagine them cycling through their emotions of hurt and frustration and despair and resignation. And then at some inspired moment, they have an idea and they're saying, but I know it's a long shot, but maybe if we frame it the right way and maybe if we appeal to what matters to them and we have nothing to lose. And so instead of yielding to the unfairness of it all, these sisters do something. And somehow in the throes of patriarchy with feminism 3,000 years in the future, we get this story. Well, there's a lot about life today that I find disillusioning. As we learn more about global warming, I'm disillusioned that we don't band together in some way as a world community to take the steps we need to take to make this a better, safer world for my grandchildren and for yours. And as I learn about poverty and racial inequality, I'm disillusioned that we can't own the sins of our country and come together in a united way and work for justice, and many of us are disillusioned by how those professing to follow Jesus have justified violence and hatred all in the name of God. And of course, not all disillusionment is created equal. The painfulness of disillusionment is directly proportional to the degree to which we have become dependent on the illusion, right? So the longer we've believed in something, the harder it is, the more painful it is to give it up. What do you mean this meat wasn't kosher? Right? The more people in our love circle, the more people who we're connected to who believe the particular thing, the more costly it is for us to give it up. And then of course, some of our disillusionment is rooted in tragedy. I have a really good friend in the community who went through a very disillusioning thing that changed her life. And I'm going to read a quote from her. He says, all of my faith formation occurred in my involvement in a Christian ministry I was a part of for 20 some years. During that time, I developed a pretty robust scaffolding of what faith meant, how it functioned in our lives, how we behave in it, and what God does for real Christians. We prayed for everything and we believed God heard our prayers and thanked God for all the ways our prayers were answered. A little over 10 years ago, while working with a ministry uh, with teenagers, a young high schooler, came to a summer camp with our group. It was an amazing week with her and her friends and our young leaders who led their group. But just a few days after returning home, this young girl was killed in an accident. In the days and weeks following, I realized none of the scaffolding I had could hold up under this confusion and loss. 
something was deeply deficient or insufficient for these new circumstances. The scaffolding itself of faith in God, the way I had been trained to apply it or my interpretation of it all and how it held together. I was disillusioned beyond repair and recovery of that old system. So for the rest of our time, I want to ask, what can we do with our disillusionment? Is some disillusionment helpful? Can good come from it? So number one, we understand disillusionment as a part of life. Disillusionment just is a part of life. At some point, my five kids, Tom and our uh, five kids, figured out that we were not God. That was very sad for me and Tom. <laughs> and it was somewhat disillusioning for my children, but it was necessary. We let our kids down and we failed them, not because we want to, just because we're human. At some point, our understanding of God or whatever we put our faith in will let us down. Our politics will let us down. Our country will let us down. But Jesus seems to welcome disillusionment. When he says, for those who have eyes to see, let them see, the implication is that how we are perceiving reality, like what we believe is true, what narrative we are believing, um, or that we have been told and are telling ourselves is false. Jesus says that understanding the good news, understanding the gospel requires our willingness and readiness to see the truth in spite of what is presented. So we have an invitation as Christians to see beyond what serves us, beyond what is comfortable, and let ourselves feel the weight of that reality. The prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophets, these are people who opened their eyes. They're people with eyes to see what society tried to hide or obfuscate. They are the ones who ask the questions, who benefits from this belief? Who benefits from the stories that we're telling? Who is exploited by it? It is from that place of disillusionment that they cry out for change. So disillusionment implies that we are understanding something in a new light. Facing it is what drives us to action. Number two, understand your disillusionment and determine a course of action. So often when we're disillusioned, it takes us some time to deal with it, sometimes a lot of time, to heal emotionally or to come to terms with implications. Our invitation is to understand how deep our wounding goes and to give ourselves time and space and the help that we need to heal. But the sisters in our story also invite us to take action if there's an opportunity or to look for ways to create an opportunity. The sisters are shrewd, they're strategic, they're extraordinarily visionary, literally thousands of years 
ahead of their time. They do not accept the narrative that they've been given. They don't accept their station or their status in life. 3,000 years later, in 1848, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott organized the first women's rights convention in Seneca Falls, New York, because they were disillusioned. And on December 1st, 1955, the modern civil rights movement began when disillusioned Rosa Parks, African-American woman, was arrested because she said, no, I'm not going to the back of that bus. Greta Thunberg was disillusioned, a young girl who was disillusioned when she started a worldwide campaign against global warming. Our church was disillusioned when we became inclusive. We were disillusioned with the theology we had and the limitations of it. Some of you know who Rain Wilson is, so he was Dwight Schrute, am I saying that right, in The Office? Okay, I have never seen The Office. I am probably the only one in the room who's never seen The Office. I had to ask my husband how to pronounce his last name, and he told me wrong, but then some women at a breakfast told me the correct way. <laughs> Apparently, Dwight Schrute. Okay. Um, he came out with a new book, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. Um, and I heard him in an interview, and it was so compelling. And he argues, among other things, but he says, listen, getting the right person in office or getting that one new policy is not going to fix the broken systems that we inhabit. He says, uh, or he believes that we need a spiritual revolution. So... Wilson is a practicing Baha'i. I grew up pretty close to a Baha'i temple. It was really beautiful. And actually, once I was a volunteer, or not a volunteer, a temporary worker in my early days of career, I did some work at that Baha'i temple, and they were like such nice people. Anyway, he's a practicing Baha'i, so a believer in God and what he would call, I think, great um, spiritual wisdoms. But Wilson argued, um, as part of his book in, in this interview, um, and I found it compelling that Jesus came for such a revolution, right? That Jesus understood that the systems of his day weren't working, that he was disillusioned by the religion of his day. So not critiquing Judaism, but critiquing the way in which some people were living it out and beyond Judaism, critiquing the Roman Empire, positioning himself as a different kind of king. And as one who's disillusioned with so many of the systems of our day and so much of the ways things are enacted today, I'm really compelled by the need for a spiritual revolution. I would like to think that that is what we are going for at Sanctuary. And not in the Christian sense of revival, where if anything, you can become more tribalistic. But in the sense of becoming like Jesus, in the sense of loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves even when our neighbor is poor and destitute and a different color and identifies as they. 
a revolution that awakens our best, most generous selves. This would be a good course of action, I think. Finally, number three, disillusion can cause a pendulum to swing. So I read about a sentiment that was engraved in a concentration camp wall that aptly, I think, expressed the disillusionment um, of that time. And what was written in this wall was, if there is a God, he would need to work hard to get my forgiveness. Many rabbis, understandably, didn't speak much about God in the years post-Holocaust, right? It was too hard, and I totally understand it. But it was into that moment in history that I was born and into this era that I attended synagogue. I learned Torah. I learned Hebrew. I learned Jewish rituals and law, all of which I love to this day. But I didn't learn God. And it was my disillusionment 25 years later that left me on my knees one afternoon crying out to a God that I hope existed. And that prayer led me to Jesus and then to Tom and then five beautiful children and this glorious extended family, all of which was born out of my disillusionment. I'll close with this. My friend who suffered that loss all those years ago that caused that disillusionment has remained in our community. And maybe against all odds, she has always been and remains a significant leader and influencer in this church and continues to faithfully serve lots of young people with a scaffolding that allows for life's tragedies. Her faith is expansive and curious as she continues to evolve. Before we move to communion and worship, we're going to take a quick moment to do an imaginative prayer exercise for those who are willing to give it a try. So here's what I want you to do. Identify, and it could be anything, something that you are currently disillusioned with. So just think of anything. Wait, Santa, is it real? It could be anything at all. From the more mundane to the more serious, pick something that you're currently disillusioned with. We're going to take a moment, and for those who would like, close your eyes and... We're going to imagine ourselves just sitting on a bench in nature, somewhere beautiful, maybe our beautiful tulips and wildflowers around us. And we have this disillusionment, this thing in our heart that we are carrying, whatever that is. And imagine Jesus or how you um, are most comfortable um, imagining God walking to you and sitting next to you on that bench. So Jesus is sitting next to you on the bench knowing what you're holding 
in your heart. And we're going to take just a moment to ask, what is Jesus saying to you in your disillusionment? And we'll just take like 30 seconds to make space for what God would say to us in our particular moment of disillusionment. Amen.